admired from afar. Welcome, Jonathan Foster. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. And we're going to have a good time. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I sort of connected with you through the Rethinking God with Tacos podcast, you know, with Derek and Jason, who are amazing. And you were talking about a, a project that you're getting ready to come to publish that was so touching. I, I said, I need this dude on the show. So anyway, tell <laughs> us about your project. That's nice. Thank you. Um, well, I'm good. Some, I'm glad something good happened with Rethinking God with Tacos. So that's, that's good. good. Yeah, no, those are good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so the current project, yes, it's called Indigo, the Color of Grief. And it is, well, gosh, it's eight and a half years in the making, although some of it maybe a lot longer because some of it goes into theological things that I've been trying to reapproach my whole life. But but certainly eight and a half years, almost nine years, actually, as my daughter uh, unfortunately died on New Year's Day 2015. So yeah, coming up on nine years. Wow. And um, so Indigo is an artistic like dive into what I think is going on possibly with me and my identity and who God might be and and how my theology is um, being morphed and transformed in the middle of all of it. And yeah, so it's kind of a special thing. And I'm really, really thankful. I really hate that I had to write it, but also I'm really thankful that I got to write it all at the same time. Yeah, all, all of that. It's part of that redemptive thing that's going on with something that should have never happened, you know. Right. Well, absolutely. So for those of you who don't know Jonathan, I did collect a bio, and I'm just going to read that to see you have a little sense of who I love your bio. Your bio is a little bit like your book. I love the sort of um, you, you flow and you like punctuation, you know, by the wayside and whatever. It's very it's poetic. <laughs> I've never seen a poetic bio. That's a, that's a gift right there. Um, so anyway, partner of one, father of three, been published, sold some books. I know that, you know, I, I published and okay, I sold a book. Yay. Mm-hmm, right. um, been writing for several years. I podcast and I'm a lowercase t theologian with a doctorate in ORT and Mimisa. So you're going to have to tell me what that is, but I'll just hold on. Let me finish. And then we'll, I'll ask you favorite nonprofit. I love this lovehaiti.org. That's beautiful. Love to hike. Enjoyed pastoring for a long time, but went through a bunch of change because I went through a bunch of loss. We're going to talk about that. All that change messed with my theology as it does. Then the religious system didn't want me out. And I understand uh, which is absurd, but also I'm grateful for all of it. So love the bio. That's great. So <laughs> just tell me, just so I'm following, what is ORT and mimesis? Yeah, sorry, but with the acronyms. ORT is Open and Relational Theology. Um, if your listeners have heard of Thomas J. Ord, he's kind of a, well, he coined the phrase Open and Relational, and Tom's been a friend of mine for quite some time and started a doctoral program a few years ago. So I got to be the first to graduate, uh, wow. which, by the way, I should distinguish that doesn't mean I graduated 
top of my class, number one. I just means like <laughs> chronologically. I, I was made it through. Right. Number one. Right. Okay. So that was cool. And so my dissertation is where I brought open and relational theology together with Rene Girard's mimetic theory. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just basically um, watched the sparks fly and tried to figure out, you know, convergence and divergence. And that was a really uh, cool thing. And it turned into a book called Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe, which came out last year. Wow, that sounds fascinating. I, I, I'm already going lots of places with that as you're talking about that. So, well, we kind of alluded to the rough stuff, uh, multiple rough stuff, the hardest thing, of course, your daughter. Um, so share a little bit of your journey um, that led up to this book, but just your journey in general. Yeah. Right, right. So, man, it's just a lot of stuff. It's so funny. Recently, um, I was at, I've been doing some, uh, filling in, doing some work at a United Methodist Church across town here in Kansas City. And a friend of mine introduced me and she said, he he's getting older, but he's low mileage. That's lovely. <laughs> which I, which I was <laughs> hilarious. Wow. So that's my current favorite. But um, I think the problem is I disagree with her. I feel like I'm high mileage. I feel like I've gone through so many things and had so many experiences, but yeah, my background, I grew up, uh, my dad was a pastor, both granddads were pastors. And so I kind of grew up Midwest, you know, fairly evangelical, conservative, religious background. And most all of that was really, really good. I mean, legalism aside, I had a I had a great um, set of parents and, and a pretty decent church life to grow up in. And then um, I started church planting myself. That part of pastoring was really interesting to me. And musician, I was a musician in my former days, so always kind of been involved in that. Um, But we started, um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been like a couple of decades of like one really significant subtraction from our life after another, Um, really just absurd, intense things. Some of that I barely touch upon on Indigo, but certainly the most intense then would have been our daughter in 2015. And we had just planted this would have been my third church plant in 2013. So the church plant was only maybe a year and a half old and, you know, full of, um, it wasn't a big thing, maybe 150 in a lot of young people, a lot of people who knew my kid and knew my boys. So to process that like in real time with a lot of other people, uh, while being a pastor was super interesting and challenging and complex, but, um, yeah, so I started doing that, and I don't know. I feel like I'm already feel like I'm rambling, but yeah, my theology shifted. Enjoying and... your rambling. What's that? I said I'm enjoying your rambling. Oh, good, good, good. This good. is a good picture of you. So ramble away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I should say yeah. I had, like you mentioned, the bio of two other kids. We have two boys um, who are now 22 and 27, and I will be a grandpa in February. Oh wow! So, Congratulations. So I know. I'm looking forward to that. Wow. Uh, So, yeah. And then as I was trying to figure out how to carry this um, idea, this this loss, my thoughts about who God might be started to shift. And it really affected a lot of things, not the least of which is my posture towards LGBTQ+. And so I started, I I don't think I was ever, I'd like to think I was not anti-LGBTQ+. But I inherited a lot of stuff from my 
tradition that I just took for word. So when I challenged that, yeah, the denomination I was a part of ultimately decided I should go and our, our, our whole church. I've actually never seen anything like that where they just said me and the whole church. And that was in 2019. Wow. And then COVID hit and, and a bunch of other stuff goes into that. So yeah, there's a lot of things in there, but maybe that gives a a somewhat discombobulated sense of who I am. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think who we are is kind of discombobulated. Like if we can yeah. peg ourselves, um, we're really boring, superficial cardboard people, which we're not. Right. So that is totally fine. Now you have you have a you have a poetic gift. You really do. Uh, Thank do, you. do you do poetry per se, or is this just kind of your style of expressing yourself? Yeah, I try to write poetry. I mean, I'd like to think on good days that I I could make a good poet, uh, whatever that means. And um, and I have a bunch of probably like lots of different writers, a bunch of different writings laying around on different hard drives and scraps of paper of stuff that I've written. Yeah. And a f- few things I try to insert into the writing. I'm really interested in, um, in the idea of theopoetics, which is just a what is that again? The, 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 okay, God, God poetry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just a, it's a mashup of uh, theology and poetry. And so people like Catherine Keller and John Caputo and those kinds of folks have been influential on my writing. Um, Indigo, I, you know, I, I go much more artistic and almost into poetry more than some of my other writing. Um, but that the whole subject matter seemed to lend itself to that kind of thing. Of course, this is not a, yeah, this is not a dry discussion. It's a flow of the heart. And you're so, you're so transparent in that. And as you, as, as I was engaging with, uh, with your, your work, um, really uh, felt all the shifts and the nuances and the confusion and the bafflement and the beauty and the horror and Mm. all of that just flowing. And it's, it's, it's kind of a a journey through your process and it's beautiful but what it does is it uh, challenges our own process and and what what the areas of grief that we have and the areas of questions we have about where is god and we're going to talk about that um in uh in such a such a great way um so why did you pick the title indigo yeah that's kind of interesting well first of all i picked i just thought the word was evocative and it's it's been a word that's just been bouncing around in the back of my brain for a couple of years. And then um, the more I thought about it, I really liked the symbolism of like, what is indigo? Is it purple? Is it blue? Is it, you know, it's, it's this various gradation of all these different colors. Um, I liked the direction it was going in terms of darkness because the grief piece of it you know, is, is darkness. But, you know, if you look at it the other way, it's going towards lightness. So mm-hmm. I liked all of that. And then it does make a brief appearance in the book. So it's a bit of an Easter Easter egg hunt. People can try to look for it in the book itself. So it wound up, I didn't set out for this to happen, but it wound up having like three or four different reasons. And um, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of really good feedback about just the word itself. A lot of people were like, oh, I just like the title. I'm going to buy the book. So I'm like, okay, I guess we did a good job then. 
It's, it's it is so perfect. So it's not only evocative for you; it's evocative for anyone. And the the name of the book is Indigo: The Color of Grief. Mm. And you know, grief. How can you pin it down? You know, how can you? Right. Is it all dark? But there's some light. Is what 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 is that? And that that's that's beautiful. And that's honest. And I think we always get in trouble with our hearts when we're trying to put things in a box and nail it down because our hearts are mysterious and God's mysterious and life and death is mysterious. And so all of that, it deserves a mysterious, deep, deep color that you can't quite nail down. I love that. I was thinking I wore this. I, this is not indigo, but it's it's heading that well, direction. I, no, I just yeah. noticed that while you were talking. Like that's yeah. very appropriate. I yeah. should have it was a God thing. I, I did it for the both of us. So thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, so tell us a little bit about your daughter who yeah. you lost and you love so much still. Sure. So her name was Quincy. Her name is Quincy. And she would have been 29 this year, 30 next year. Quincy was um, just super unique, interesting person. She was very fiery when she was young. She <laughs> she basically took years off of our life because she was so wild and undomesticated. We never quite got her domesticated, That's which adorable. I think is probably a good thing. When she was like two or three, we lived in Arizona at the time. And I remember we were in the apartment complex and we would, in the wintertime, often have the windows open. And when she would get in trouble, which happened frequently at that stage in her life, she would take off running and yell at the top of her lungs. She'd say, somebody help me, somebody help me. <laughs> and it was it was alarming um, because we just figured, I mean, she did this so much that my wife and I got to the point where we like knew, before we would discipline her, we would go make sure all the doors and windows and everything were closed right. because we were just fearful someone would call CPS on us or something. <laughs> So she was uh, sinister and very smart. And she kind of, that's a like a little bit of a microcosm of who she was. She just took that energy into her life and she played soccer and she was a musician and um, she was a nursing student and uh, was just full, full of life. Yeah. Yeah. And is full of life now, right? That's right. That's oh. right. Um, I, I just wanted to read a, a little, let's see, I, uh, a little bit from your book that described her. It says, this is what we were used to. She was a force of life that could initiate and shape life in others, cousins, brothers, friends, wife, me. And then the force was gone. She died and certain parts of us died. And so this is boom, the hit in the gut where you need help breathing. Yeah. So um, now that was a car accident. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you go in some detail just about how it, it, it hit you and your thinking process, or I'm not thinking process as you encounter that. And you kind of go back and forth in the story about from younger to, you know, that. And um, so, and you had mentioned at one time, and I, I so appreciate this. And I actually uh, uh, listened to the Rethinking God with Tacos thing, and you all mentioned uh, Ellie Wiesel's, and I have no idea if I'm saying that correct, iconic book Night. It hit me so hard. I actually went off, purchased it, and read it that day. 
it is such a, oh my God, powerful book. Yeah. Uh, and this had a huge impact in your processing. You started, as I understand, you started reading that before you got the news. And then when you got the news, it had all sorts of implications for you. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, and by the way, lots of us are unsure about how to pronounce his name. So I've heard it multiple different ways, but I usually say Ellie Wiesel. Oh, that sounds better. I like the yeah, pronunciation on it. I don't know if it's right, but that's what I it's, normally say. I think say. it's more flattering. Good job. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Ellie Wiesel was a Pulitzer Prize winning um, author after he went through what he went through at Auschwitz, where his family and um, most of his community were drug away to that concentration camp and killed. And his work is, it's its a, its an amazing uh, book. It's not overly long. It's pretty sparse. And, you know, clearly, not only because of the story that happened, which I'll share in just a moment, but even just his style of writing has influenced me and Indigo um, is connected to it in some way because things like Knight and, and other authors that we could talk about if we wanted, but I've always found it to be interesting that some of these people can say so much with so little. And I think Elie Wiesel is one of those kinds of, of authors. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing I'll mention too about what how his style influenced me is um, he doesn't really offer any ultimate answers. He just tells the story, but there's something really beautiful about the humanity that he's exposing and expressing as he tells the story. So yeah, I think Night is one of the most important works, certainly of the last century and maybe for a long time. Yeah. But the direct connection to Indigo, as you uh, mentioned, was the the morning of, this would have been New Year's Day 2015, I was reading Night and I was reading the, the story in there of where Elie Wiesel and his co-prisoners, whatever we call them, were forced by the Nazis to march underneath three Jewish men who were hanging. Actually, I think they were young boys. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's an absurd, ridiculous story. And as they walk underneath, Elie Wiesel hears a voice crying from behind him that asks, where is God? And then the next thing that Wiesel hears is, and I think he's hearing this in his own voice. I I'm not sure he's hearing an audible voice, but in his own head and heart, he hears, where's God? He's hanging there on the gallows with those boys. So I read that that morning, and not unlike thousands and millions of people who've read that story probably, but certainly with me, I, I just stopped and I closed the book. And I just uh, remember looking out over, I was at my mother and loves farmhouse looking out the window across the really gray morning and thinking how this is just weird you know it's absurd what some people have had to go through and um, mind-blowing mm -hmm. mind-blowing yeah you you just really can't quite wrap your mind around it and so fast forwarding through the day that call and response echoed back and forth in my, my heart and my mind at various times throughout the day I wasn't trying to think about it but I wasn't trying not to think about it, but, you know, I'd be doing the dishes and I'd hear, where is God? And then the response, where is God? He's hanging on the gals with those boys, though a couple of different times, probably because of my Christian heritage, I would think he's hanging on the cross, you know, yeah. with all of this or something like that. 
And so that happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So that happened several times throughout the day. And then, um, yeah, we got the news at about, well, at about four 30, we had the, we had a suspicion that something had happened, but we didn't officially get the news until later that night after sunset. And then as I'm packing the car up, we decided uh, to head home after that. That same call and response began to happen in my mind. Where where was God? And then the response I heard um, was, where is God? He was in the car dying with Quincy. And yeah, that was a, that was a strange awkward, holy, terrible, really beautiful moment that in some ways, that's really all I've been trying to do for almost nine years is to figure out like what the expletive does that mean and how does it? You can, you can explicit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a very good cursor. So sometimes I just have to use that. Um, Yeah. What does that mean? And (laughs) <laughs> who, who am I in the midst of that and and all the implications? So, yeah. yeah. Well, and then also with Quincy's dad and with Quincy's mom as they got the news, right? I mean, this how, how, how do you survive that? You know, yeah. how do you survive that? As yeah. You survive that, yeah. How did you, in your journey, and you, you, you bring a lot of really deep thoughts how did you keep yourself from going in the darkness or, or did you go in the darkness of just angry at God? How could you let this happen to my, my little girl? I know she was a big girl, but she's a little girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never really personally felt angry at God. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I know some people have thought that I did and they've, they've interpreted my theological changes as, oh, you're just angry at God, so you have to lash out or do whatever, Um, which I don't think is right. Um, First of all, I should say, I'm not sure any of us ever know what our real motivations are. We're also- We're complex. We are complex, and we're all influenced by others, and so, but to the best of my ability, I I don't think I was ever mad at God, but- you know, the word you, you started to say, darkness, I think you used that word. Um, that, that was a very appropriate word. There's been a lot of really dark, heavy, <laughs> heavy, heavy moments of just trying to figure out how to carry this thing. And so, uh, yeah, so that that has just been the reality. And and I've just, one of the things I've tried to do all along is to not deny that. I one thing, one, I am grateful for some of the other stuff we went through previously, not for the events themselves, but for what I learned. And one of the things I learned years ago was contrary to the way I was raised, either in my church or within the middle of American consumeristic, mm-hmm. capitalistic society, uh, contrary to all of that, which says, you know, that we're supposed to be overcomers and victorious and constantly winning and and these kinds of things, which in and of themselves, some of those things aren't wrong or bad. But I had a steady diet of that. And and not only did I have a steady diet of it, I, I think I probably cultivated it some myself. So it's not necessarily the fault of everyone else. It's a combination of those things. And so by the time uh, this thing with Quincy rolled around, you know, I, I had learned my lesson, if that's the right way to say it, probably not. But I had I had learned of the concept of 
I'm not going to go into this thing thinking about how I can be a winner, you know, and how I can dominate this thing and power up and use it for God's glory or whatever. It, it was just, and it still is though it's taken on different forms. Now it was just this really heavy, dark thing that I've, that I've just tried to figure out how to carry. Yeah. Yeah. And and so much of that, um, you quoted uh, from the movie Wind River, and I, I thought I'd quote it uh, because it's so good. Uh, and I actually haven't seen the movie, so I look forward to checking that out at some point. But it says, the main character looks straight at his friend, says, point is, Martin, you can't steer from the pain. If you do, you'll rob yourself. You'll rob yourself of every memory of her, every last one from her first step to her last smile. It will kill them all. Just take the pain, Martin. You hear me? You take it. It's the only way you'll keep her with you. And you said, sounds about right. So embracing the pain means something precious was here and is not here. And and we we know she's in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's not there where you can reach out and grab her, you know, give her a hug, all that. And, um, and so taking the pain and learning to carry the pain, because, you know, I, I do a ton of coaching and I just hear these, I, how are you not, you know, like mowing down people in the mall, right. You know, with your story, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. How are you a good person who has any sort of semblance of, you know, of goodness in the universe. And so it's amazing to see the resiliency of people, any pointers in carrying the pain for someone who, you know, is maybe just stuck, just maybe stuck into some real grief. Maybe it's fresh. Maybe they, they have, you know, uh, suppressed it and now it's kind of coming back to haunt them or maybe they're just feeling it. Any, any insights and we're not looking for the answers because carrying pain is never easy. Right. Yeah. That's a really important question how to help encourage people to carry it because to deny it is well i started to say it's not viable i mean it's it might be viable for a short season and the reality is some of these things are so traumatic and so hard that some people have to carry that you do have some people do learn how to compartmentalize and the last thing i would want to do is to you know Cast shame upon that because you don't, you don't rip open their compartments when right they're right not, they're not ready right exactly mm-hmm. yeah so I think yeah giving yourself grace to just be wherever you're at but a I, an idea that has helped me is the idea is the idea that um, the the pain of this thing really never goes away what I think I think is happening is that uh my heart is getting bigger so the pain stays the same but the heart gets bigger and so then the question for me has always been well how how do i help get the heart bigger how do i grow the interiority of who i am and it's funny because when i was younger if you would if i would have had this kind of conversation if i would have been capable which i probably wouldn't have been but i would have thought oh well you know you read your baba more and you and you go to church more faithfully and you give more. And that maybe, maybe, maybe not. But now 
it's funny. It's it's basically like just um, like how's your sleep? How's do you do you ever think about breathing? Everything's good. <laughs> How about you know what about eating and exercising? Like if I hadn't, if I don't get out just about every day and take a hike uh, when I'm in the mountains. Unfortunately, right now I'm in Kansas City, so it's I can't really take a hike in the hills, but kind of. Um, but that movement, you mm-hmm. know, that is how I've helped grow the interiority. And I know that's not a real spiritual answer, but it also is kind I of think like it's a, a very really, spiritual answer. It really is kind how of. How do you a, help I mean, your heart grow? It's like I'm moving. I exist. Yeah, There's life yeah. still. There's hope yeah. still. Yeah. If I don't see it. And some days it's um, mm-hmm. some days there's nothing too extraordinary about it. It's just like, oh, I got to get up and move. Mm-hmm. Other days, I think about it as I'm moving. I think about uh, exercise is an exorcise, the way mm-hmm. I exorcise the, the demon, so to speak. And yes. I, I just think about the blood movement and the oxygen and the breathing and the inhale of what I thought life was going to be and the exhale of letting go of those expectations. And so on those days, you know, it really gets more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other days it's just, no, I just need to take a nap. Yeah. Naps, so, are good. <laughs> naps are good. Yeah. that's. Yeah. Good. I think that's brilliant. I think that's a whole lot more profound uh, than than maybe people realize because mm-hmm. it is a it, it is a, an attitude of continuing life self-care mm-hmm. is important i mean we're given one commandment to love as god loves well we love the one that's not here with us but loving ourselves is also loving her and loving the god who created her and you and it's 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 a cry of hope i i grabbed this quote because i thought it was so incredible it says what is life if not beauty's pursuit at the edge of the grave. And the truth is none of us are going to get out of this life alive the way we've known it, right? We we do, we believe in eternal life. Yes, all of that, but not in the way that we've known it. And even just moving through life, uh, we get these like curveballs that take us, but there's a pursuit of something beautiful, even while the grave is just, is there. But, you know, the value of life is is highlighted when it's not eternal the way we know it. It's precious. Mm. And so it's a celebration of the preciousness of life, the preciousness of people, the preciousness of all that is beautiful, made by a beautiful creator in right on the razor's edge of of death. And, you know, uh, you know, theologically, you know, Jesus bridged the gap, gap, he overcame death, hell, and the grave, all of that. He, knowing him is eternal life, all of that. But in that relationship, there's something beautiful, even as we're butting up against that. And that's a incredibly hopeful, incredibly powerful, and incredibly beautiful. Um, You did mention to some, and I think this might be helpful because we're talking about grief. Um, there are some things that aren't helpful (laughs) and, you know, and, and not all of us have the same emotional intelligence. Um, and some of us are just dumber than rocks. Um, and some of us say stupid things because we don't know what to say, or we say nothing 
because we don't know what to say. And sometimes nothing's actually a really good idea, um, mm-hmm. but not avoiding people in their grief. Um, any, right. any, anything you want to highlight with that? Well, I'll just, I'll say it this way. And I, I, I think I may say this, something like this in the book, what I discovered a long time ago was that the intensity of my problems was reminding people of the intensity of their problems. And so just by virtue of me being in conversation with them, we may not even be talking about the problem. I could tell it was making them nervous and anxious. By the way, I should say maybe I just could be making people nervous and anxious for other reasons too. But, um, but definitely the whole like, and and it's funny, even with this book, um, I recognize that some people don't even want to read it because they're not prepared to go there. Right. And so I, I keep encouraging them to read it because not, even if you haven't lost a kid, because we've all experienced loss. Um, and we all know the loss of a relationship or the loss of some dream that we had, you know. So it's a very, right, it's a very existential, troubling thing for folks. And so when you go through things, you'll have friends and acquaintances and others who who, as you said, they don't really know what to say, but I do think most people mean well. Yeah. Um, and, but I would also agree with you that it's probably better if you don't know what to say to not say anything because some of these things, there really isn't anything you can say to, to fix it. But yes, totally agree. That doesn't mean you would, would avoid them. It just means that you're, you're now being invited to enter into their pain with them to walk through hell with them, which I think theologically is such a really great picture of what um, the story tells us that seemed to happen with Jesus. Like there's this long history of the things that took place immediately following the death of Jesus. There's, and there's not a ton of biblical verses, but Mm -hmm. in first Peter, there's some and Hebrews, there's some Matthew has one little short verse, but this whole idea that, Jesus descended into death or Hades or Sheol or mm-hmm. whatever it might be and and begin to share the hope and in, in, in the good news. So I, I just love that picture of of Jesus being with people no matter where they're at, which by the way, if this is true, it means there is no God forsaken place in the entire cosmos. You. Yes, thank you. Yeah. We say he's omnipresent, but then we make him not omnipresent, which is right. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I tell people, listen, he makes his bed in hell or Sheol, the realm of the dead, to get the people to hell out of hell. So there's not a hell hole that Jesus yeah. is not deeper with. And just sometimes yeah. he'll hang out with you in your hell hole. Yeah. So yeah. Actually to get and, you the hell out of hell. Right. And you, let's see, what's the best way to say this? You may not, I want to say something like you, you may not get out of hell for a while. I mean, I would encourage anyone not to stay in hell, but sometimes these things, hell is again, complex. There's a lot of complicated reasons why we wind up. There isn't just one reason. And, and sometimes like in the context of what we're talking about today, you don't even ask to be there right? and to rush out too quickly to try to get out of it, to find God is, antithetical to the biblical story the biblical story as you said is god went there yeah i just think that it's that's so cool and it's so worth 
we could write a million books and still not mine the really interesting stuff. So anyhow, your question, sorry to try to answer it. Yeah, there no, are some things. Great. <laughs> it's all good <laughs> stuff. Question. If you've got something better to say than my question, just say the better thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I'm just following the rabbit trails in my mind. But um, yeah, there there are certain things that people said that after a while I started to connect the dots. And I'm like, I, I don't think, I'm not sure they really believe that, but I know I don't. Like, I mean, a big one is everything happens for a reason. Again, people mean well, and they're just trying to figure out how to cope with their own stuff. But I actually don't think everything happens for a reason, because then that slots God into some master programmer who has, you know, pulling the levers, pushing the buttons, started the code that makes everything happen the way it does. And if God authored the death of anyone, I, I think that's... Hi, yeah, it's highly he problematic. He says he doesn't take life. So, I mean, right. you know, so, so he doesn't take life. So that's not a God idea. Death no. happens. Right. And so took it. Right. And then, so then it invites you to then think, well, what do I think is going on? And then you kind of have to get, it's more more nuanced than that. You have to start thinking in more, less black and white and more gray, um, which a lot of people our religious systems, unfortunately, we haven't taught us how like to gray. do that very well. <laughs> we do no. not like mystery. We do not like indigo. We don't want to right. name it black, no. blue, purple. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, it's so It is so true. So, yeah. And you actually wrote quite a bit on hell, which I thought was incredible. Um, I, I wrote down quite a bit. I, I don't think I'm going to read it, but I like the ending part. Okay. This is... I just love this so much. I'm sorry. It just <laughs> makes me happy. I think what I think is that hell needs a hug. <laughs> yeah. Needs a hug. Yeah. Um, and you need a hug in hell. Hugging's yeah. good. Hugging's very good. You know, it's kind of funny because there was a season earlier on in my development, whatever, when I when I had all these hell encounters, it was just, I'd get visions. I was constantly, I'm like, I'm back. Like, did I not get it the first time? Apparently I didn't. I needed this season, but I will say I've learned more in hell than I have any place else, who God is, who I am, and what he's able to do in redeeming things, but not in the way that I would have orchestrated it. We have to be careful that we don't impose on God an expectation that he's not authoring. He's not, he's not obligated to fulfill an expectation, but he is who he is. And so good will happen eventually. Beauty will happen eventually um, as we're connecting with him. But um, I am, you know, that that's, that's profound because if God is in the process of redeeming all things, then hell gets to be redeemed. And in right. whatever that is. And so, and we get to be redeemed in our hell stories. But I, I agree with you. If we get this Christian, con this Western Christian concept of, you know, we got to overcome, we got to be victorious. Well, Christ was. And he said, as you remain in me, me and you, you'll bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. So his victory is our victory, but we may not look super victorious in our grief. We may be crippled, but God will do something in the crippling. Not that he authored the crippling, right. but he will do something beautiful in the crippling. And yeah. but we need to hold it loosely because we get into trouble when we start to place have a specific expectation of what that needs to look like in order for me to stay saved, Jesus, it's got to, this has got to happen. Well, you know, he's actually the author of your salvation. So that's kind of on right there. 
but um, but he's not obligated to jump through the hoops of our expectations, but we can grapple with God about keeping an expectancy of something good and beautiful in the midst of unspeakably ugly. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from you in, in what you're saying. Um, what else do you want to share about your thoughts? And we, you know, we brought up quite a bit on, on God, you changed your ideas of God and it started off with embracing the LGBTQ community. And I'm just assuming just humanity and that got you in a lot of hot water, um, which was probably, you know, let the chips fall where they may as you follow Christ. Mm -hmm. But it's painful to be rejected, particularly in the kind of outrageous left foot of fellowship you got. Um, That's painful. Other things that you want to share about who you've discovered God to be that's maybe been surprising or something in this process? Yeah, there's been a lot of really meaningful I started to say fun. I don't know if it's fun, but it's been really meaningful, enjoyable, poignant things that I've discovered. And I think, uh, well, there's, I'll just try to narrow it down. Like I've just been trying to stay committed and recommit myself to the idea that God might be love, which is not only biblical, philosophically, it seems to make sense, Biblically, it seems to make sense, but it, what it asked me to do was to kind of redefine the concept of love. And so it's interesting because now when I talk about love, and this is true with a lot of different theological words, when I talk about love, in my mind, when I say love, I think of this non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating blessing slash energy in relationship to God and others. Well, each one of those things are like intentional and, you know, I used to just talk about love and assume it was whatever. And what wound up happening is eventually love would get co-opted by either wrath or power or hell or justice or sacrifice or um, omnipotence. And um, so part of my journey has been unwinding the way I've been wound so that I could rewind if that's the right word. So I could reorient myself around the concept of love. And by the way, I could be wrong. It's possible because there is a way to read the Bible and there's a way to interpret life to think that there might be other things at play. But what I think I think is that love is the most, like Teilhard de Chardin says, is the core energy of the, of the cosmos. And I, I think I want to be committed to that. I think that still makes the most sense. Um, so when you asked, are there other things you want to say about God? Like that to me is the primary thing. So the, I think the essence of God is love. And um, that's been, I mean, I would have probably said that 10 years ago. It's scriptural. It's scriptural. <laughs> yes. But I probably would have done the whole, like, I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, people will say, well, God is love, but... And so what I do now is I say, God is love. And love looks like a lot of things. And it's, yeah, it's not a, but it's not something else supersedes it. But I think that that is the fundamental essence of love and open a relational theology has helped me with that a lot. Mimetic theory has helped me a lot with the scapegoating piece. So maybe I'll I'll just kind of leave it at that. I think just a recommitment to a God of love 
that's been really enjoyable to to deep deeply study it and to be coming out the other end after hours and hours of reading and praying and staring at the ceiling and talking with smart people and thinking about it. And you're still at this really simplistic, in some ways, thing. Oh, yeah. No, God is love. It's crazy. It is, it, well, I, I, I cannot be. I'm, I've been sitting on my hands because it's such a hot button for me. I, I Anytime I teach it, it's all about God is love. I just, I, I, I tell people I'll get off that when we get it. So yeah. nothing's going to happen soon. Um, and I, so I, I get a lot of flack for that. Uh, but yeah, I don't care because um, he he is who he is. You know, it's interesting as a little girl, because I was a deep thinker too, and I had a lot of tragedy in my life, yada, yada. And, mm. and I remember trying to, because I didn't grow up in a Christian home and, and I was trying to get my mind around when you boil it down, what is the essence of meaning? Where, mm. where can you boil it down and you can't reduce it anymore? And I had encounters with God, but I didn't know who he was. I just knew that he loved me and I loved him, which is really good theology. Right. Um, and, um, and later, um, you know, I had, I, I we went traveling in Europe and I saw him on a cross. And I said, that's the man I had encounters with. So, so it, I started out in a really pure way, went sideways for a long time. But this thing that would not let me go was this person who was love. He just wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. And I'd give yeah. him the flying, flying finger and he'd be like, babe, when you're ready to come back, you just, I'm here. Yeah. I'm like, la, 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 I can't hear you, you know, whatever. But <laughs> that's the person that was in pursuit. So everything can be boiled down to that. And, and so understanding that rightly is a place and, and you're, I, I hope you don't hear this wrong way, but you're so adorable to say, I think that I think, cause I love your humility. It's like, I'm thinking, but my thinker could be off and yeah. yes, all of us. Um, I've just butted up against this puppy so much. I can't get deeper than that. Um, and God is not correcting me. He's, it just, comes back to that over and over but what it does is it is it turns back on itself and becomes so much greater such a greater revelation that love is holding all things love is redeeming all things to himself so my first book that i wrote i just referred to god i I referred to love as the person of god partly because so many people are triggered by the g word right and so and and we've done a really crappy job at um inclusivity in the church. Mm-hmm. So we're getting better, you know, mm-hmm. um, we're getting better, but uh, you know, it's been such a trigger word that's helped people make some, and also get you out of yeah, Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. It's kind of making mistakes on purpose. So yeah. to get people to think like, wait, wait, what did, what did you say? Wait, you, what is that right. to force us out of, especially of our little religious boxes or honestly past our trauma that we bypass trauma where we can't hear anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your book is so beautiful. You know, so if anybody's like afraid that, I mean, there's pathos, there's real grief. It is a book on grief. And, you know, but I, I just think that we're big girls and big boys that we got, we can pull up our big girl boy panties yeah. and dive in there. You know, if people are, are, are really trying to avoid their own grief, that may be a book for later. And maybe it's a book for now so that you start to deal with it so you can actually live. People get mm-hmm. stuck in their grief mm-hmm. when they don't don't allow it to be expressed or you don't take the pain, as as like I said. Gotta so take the pain. Yeah, that's that's amazing. But there's something beautiful 
in that. Um, there's something really powerful in that. And uh, how how has your family been? Have they gone through a similar journey? I mean, everybody has their own thing, but you, you didn't go through this in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my partner and I, we've been married 33 years. And as these things always go theologically, well, pretty much anything, I tend to go through it quicker. She tends to go a little bit um, <laughs> slower, but not that's not bad. That's neither good nor bad. In fact, if anything, the quick part gets me in trouble sometimes. Um, but thankfully, we've been pretty connected. Um, and theologically, we were disassembling and reassembling around some of the same themes. So I'm really grateful for that. And I'm also like eternally grateful to have also done this with our boys who again were 12 and 17 when it happened and um, were very, very much a part of our little church plant um, up until the time they all went to college and even beyond that. So I'm really honored to have done it with them. And not that we all agree on every single thing, but there's a lot of shared common denominators and shared common value over love and reworking the whole thing. They were they were very much with me as I got um, the the un, you know uninvited from the tribe, and I was really paying close attention, especially to the boys, about how they were processing that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for all that, and I know that that's not true of all families. And by the way, it's not true of me and some of my extended family. I, I definitely, I um, there was a lot of estimation that was lost in terms of what some family members thought of me. But the four of us and my boys, the girls that they're with, yeah, we're, we seem to be good. So I'm grateful for that. That's, that's incredibly, uh, that's, that's incredibly powerful. That's beautiful to be able to go through as a family. Obviously you don't agree on everything, but I don't agree with myself on everything. So (laughs) I don't even think I agree with some of the stuff I said to you today. So you're right. Um, That's, that's how it works. But it seems we're like I say in the book, we're four fifths. Uh, we'll never we'll never be five fifths quite again. Um, but but it's a it's a I think it's a pretty cool little story that's happening. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. So your book's coming out December 5th, you said, correct? That's right. And, and then it'll be available on all the outlets and things. All the things. It'll be uh physical, digital, audio. Um, it'll be on the Amazons and Kobos and Barnes and Nobles and Apples and all those places. Lovely. Wonderful. Well, you, you guys definitely want to get that. Where can people contact you uh, if if they're wanting to connect with you? Sure. Well, the easiest way is just to go to my website, jonathanfosteronline.com. And there you can learn about you know some of the other stuff and maybe sign up to my Substack page and learn about Love Haiti, our organization there. And yeah, it'd be fun to connect with people that way. Yeah, tell tell us a little bit about this Love Haiti because I actually didn't. I should have checked into that, but I didn't. Decide. This is a hot button, so feel nice. free to talk about your hot button. <laughs> yeah, so my my daughter was planning to be a medical missionary to Haiti, and I'd taken a just taken one small trip down there, but it had been really impactful on her. And so after she died, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out different things, basically just to try to process life. And one of the ideas we landed upon pretty quickly was to go down and build a soccer field. So we went into the remote 
area of the Southeast Haiti. Uh, beautiful, beautiful country, um, but it's a politically, it's a train wreck. Essentially, it's been a train wreck sociologically since 1492 when Columbus landed there. And that was the, you know, the beginning of the, of the end for the indigenous people and some of the folks in the new world. But at any rate, the last eight and a half years that we went to build a soccer field, it turned into something else. And now we do healthcare education. We have schools, we support teachers. We're getting literally getting doctors and nurses consistently into parts of that world that have never had that consistent help. We do wealth creation. There's a ton of stuff that's really, really meaningful that's going on. And it's the hardest work and the best work that I do. And it's, <laughs> yeah, that's probably the way to say it. it's super hard. Um, and some days I wish I'd never heard of Haiti because it's so oh. heavy. Yeah. But then, but then most days I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is great, man. I'm glad, <laughs> glad to be helping it. So yeah, thanks for asking that. And if people are interested, they can, they can check out lovehaiti.org. Yeah. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, any final closing thoughts? I have so many thoughts. So we better not get going. I'll just I'll, I'll <laughs> just say, go into a second hour. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time for that. But thank you very much for having me on and and for reading the book and responding to it the way you did. And um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, lots of other people will do the same. Yeah. And with that, really, really get your copy. This is a really, let me put it this way, a really worthwhile book. Mm really worthwhile not to it's not one you want to um you know zzz, you want to savor it's kind of an encounter and it's 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 beautiful so absolutely well thank you so much it's been a delight even on a yeah, heavy topic it's delightful that's, so that's right something that's right <laughs> that really something. thank you so much for having me on yeah is it's been my pleasure everyone share this with someone who needs it and we'll, we will catch you later thanks for joining us on this episode of perspectives with katherine toon for additional information and resources please visit katherine